Welcome back, everybody, to the Enneagram Journey podcast. Today's guest is Enneagram 7, Leanne Rebellia. I really enjoyed this podcast as a fellow 7, but also Leanne is the first female 7 that we've had on the show. And she brings a completely different perspective that was so great to hear. Also, Leanne has been in Suzanne's apprentice group for the past three years and has done a lot of work, and it's evident. So if you're a 7 looking to do work or looking for some guidance i think this will be a great episode for you and also if you are in relationship with a seven i think leanne does an incredible job of sharing how she sees the world and her perspective as a seven and in her personality the things that she struggles with and what she's working on before we get to suzanne and leanne's conversation just want to remind everyone that you can visit life in the trinity ministry.com and click on the events tab to see where suzanne is going to be speaking next If you are looking for Know Your Number event, she will be in San Diego, California in January, Long Beach, California in February, and then Austin, Texas in March. And if you're looking for something deeper, she has her upcoming in November stress and security workshop, and then also one that I am super excited about, the Path Between Us Conference in Portland, Oregon. That'll be coming up next March as well. And on Sunday following that, she has an Enneagram and Foster Care and Adoption workshop. So... If those uh, are something that you're looking for, then please visit the website. Again, it's lifeinthetrinityministry.com. Click on the events tab, and hopefully we'll see you soon. But until then, please keep listening to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy this one. Um, happy birthday. Thank you. How old are you? I am go- I'm 39 today. What does that feel like? Well, it's really difficult to remember how old I am. Uh, every time someone asks me how old I am, I I kind of blank out for a second and have to think, how old do I feel and how old am I actually? Yeah. Uh, so the older I get, uh, it's tricky. So You think that's a seven thing? Hmm. I can vouch that probably. <laughs> I think that age, you know, age, is, age is just a number, you know, is something yeah. that... Uh, you hear a lot, but I think with, as a seven, I've never felt my age as, as an adult. You know, when I hit, when, <laughs> when, when I hit probably, you know, 23, I just have always felt like a 23 year old. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think 23? I, you know, freedom, I guess I think that 23, I felt more like an adult than you know, before that, just because, just because you're old enough to buy cigarettes and pornography doesn't make you an adult. (laughs) I definitely was not, uh, you know, not that that's what I was spending my days doing. Um, but you know, maybe a casual lottery ticket. Yeah. You know, we don't, we just don't have rites of passage anymore. Mm. So it kind of, after you get a driver's license, there are no more. To be clear, buying pornography, not a rite of passage. Correct. Yeah. Thank you for cleaning that up. That's good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, there are there are cultures that have certain things you do at certain ages, and we don't have that anymore. I I definitely I definitely see that. I think that at twenty three as well. I remember I felt like I was finally making decisions that maybe fell outside of the lines in the way that I had been raised, or you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my upbringing had said, you know, this is what an adult looks like, or Mm -hmm. this is, this is what you do. And I think that at 23, I think it was definitely a time in my life where I was making those choices where my faith was becoming my own faith. And I, so I think that that's what I felt more like an adult at the age of 23 than I had ever before in my life for sure. So do you think for sevens, it's a thing of, I don't want to grow up a Peter Pan kind of thing of if that, if that's adulting, then I like, I don't want to be that, but I want to be my own person too. I definitely, I think that the, you know, Peter Pan complex Mm -hmm, or this mm -hmm. idea that, um, you know, I want to be young forever. I think that's just such a part of who we are. Do you think it's a choice? Because when I, so it's not choosing the Peter Pan complex. When I occasionally have to put on a sports coat and tie, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm playing dress up, like mm-hmm. as a kid, like I'm putting, like I know how to tie my own tie, but you know, that I'm wearing my dad's sports coat and I'm, this isn't who I am. I, as an adult, still talk about coming home from work and putting on my play clothes. And, and, you know, when I see people in their work clothes, like well after hours, I look at them and say, what are you doing? Why are you wearing that? Why didn't you go home and put your play clothes put your on? after school clothes on. Yeah, eh? like it's after school. It's time for like a bagel bite and, you know, <laughs> like some <laughs> cartoons. I don't know. But uh, I think that um, I feel at home in my play clothes. You know, like I feel at home when Mm -hmm. I'm wearing, when I'm comfortable and that feels more like, again, more like me. So I agree, Joel. I don't think that it doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like a part of who I am to, you know, I think the possibilities as an eternal optimist, you know, the possibilities of a future as we get older get shorter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's tricky, you know, for a seven because we've, the future has always been open. And as we see, you know, the future shrinking and, you know, the rest of our lives, um, you know, becoming more solidified. I mean, I have always talked about what I'm going to be when I grow up, you know, I still on a regular basis say, when I grow up, you know, and that doesn't seem, that's not a joke, you know, that's not, uh, I really, I really mean that, but it's, as I get older, it gets trickier. I don't know what 40 is going to look like. Um, I think that, I think that's going to be very different, um, for me. When I was thinking about the future, one of the things that I do when I get a new journal or coloring books, um, I have a, all these coloring books. People love to buy them for me, and I like to buy them for myself. I have a really hard time coloring in them because when they're finished, what? Yes, I. So I just like open them up and look at them and think I should color in, in this, or I should write in this journal, or but the uh, the blank page uh-huh. is so beautiful to me that I don't like to fill it. That is so great. So do you think that when you look at the future for both of you, is it that time is diminishing or is it that that options are fewer? Because to me, those are not the same things. They might be to you. I don't see either one being an issue. Like I, The thing that's changed for me mm-hmm. as, as getting older and growing up 
is that just kind of understanding of lo- losing the immortality of being a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Like I know that there is a a finite time now. Mm-hmm. Whereas growing up, I'm like, I'm going to live forever. This will, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can do whatever I want for however long I want to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And now I've got a, a better understanding of time and how many hours are in a day and how quick a year goes by. Mm-hmm. But the options are still endless between today and tomorrow and between this year and next year and the So future. it's about time, not options. That's interesting to me. I thought you would give me the other answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll say this. I am aware of options. And I think that I wrestle every single day with my expectations. And when I think about the future and what I expect from the future, that has changed a lot as I've gotten older. Even when I was, you know, in my early 20s, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's changed a lot. I th- Whenever I was younger, I thought you know, being a mom was at the top of my list. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love kids. I've worked with them for a, a long time. I'm really great with them. And, you know, if you had asked my friends in high school, they would have thought I would have been the first one married and the first one with kiddos. Mm-hmm. And um, as I continue to grow up and, you know, face different difficulties with in my family structure, you know, my parents getting a divorce, being on my own, you know, paying bills, you know, um, and started to get into, you know, what rela- the pain of relationships mm-hmm. and the reality that, you know, there's, it's not just fun and that it, they're really difficult. And, uh, that kind of, instead of just, you know, sitting at home and, you know, crying because, well, I don't think this, my life isn't going to look like I thought it would. Um, I just started adapting, you know, to where I'm at now, what are my resources, who do, you know, like, what am I enjoying? Um, here's a lot of denial. Mm-hmm. Let's bury mm-hmm. that. And, but also let's look at what the potential and the possibilities are for, for the future. But options, I think, I've been pretty aware of options at certain times, the dwindling mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, options. And um, I've had to be, I've had to really be in some serious denial and try to force myself to seek other options. You know, like, what am I going to do yeah. with the rest of my life? Yeah. What does this look like? So You talked about the pain of relationships. I remember, and this you used to, teach about it, use it as a teaching point. Uh, you don't anymore. But I remember like my first breakup that just destroyed me. And I remember at the time, and like I said, you used it early on where I was just like, I'm never doing this again. Like that was, it was really painful. Do you have any sort of not to dive into <laughs> sure, your, but like a story similar to that? Definitely. Um, you know, I think that I was as a young, uh, as a young adult in my, you know, teen years, senior in high school and beyond, you know, I had this idea that there was, you know, soulmates were a real thing for me and that, um, as you know, that the, the God was just going to line up my future and that things when they look like they make sense, that that's it, Oh yeah, you know? And, and I'm not, I don't, 
jump into things like that necessarily, but when things, you know, when they felt right, it was like, well, this is it. And then, um, then it wasn't, you know, and I think the aftermath of some of those relationships. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't date for over 10 years. Um, and it wasn't because I didn't want to, it was just, um, that, I mean, that pain was so real that even it just turned my life upside down. And, you know, we've talked a lot about, I mean, we've talked a lot about pain. Yeah, we have. And it's been painful. <laughs> um, but I think that those first tastes of what pain really was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the extent of how pain can infiltrate like every aspect of your life. And, I think that as I begin to realize that through some difficult relationships, you know, and again, some of those were romantic, but some of those were like relationships with my parents, Mm -hmm. you know, things that like people that had always had filled a role in my life in a certain way and seen, uh, beginning to see behind the curtain, you know, beginning to realize, oh, not not every adult has it together. Not every adult is consistent in what they've said you know, I'm going to be here for you. And then they're not, or this is right. And this is wrong at this point. You know, and I thought that was across the board. And then suddenly I was like, Oh, well that was wrong then. Mm -hmm. Now it's okay. You know? And, but as I started to navigate those things, you know, that was over, that was really overwhelming for me. And I was, I really just dug in deep into denial and just began to live on the surface. One of the things that podcasts teach me is how to adjust teaching lines that I have. So one thing I teach about sevens that I think is true is that complexity or problems kind of arising just make things more interesting for sevens. It's like you don't give up. If it gets challenging, it's just a little more interesting. But what I'm hearing right now from the two of you is except complexity in relationships, which m- might make them more interesting, but certainly not more enticing mm. in any way. I, I remember should be easy. Well, and, and listening to Joel at times talk about his relationship, it, it's interesting when somebody's unhappy that he's in a relationship with to hear him say straight from his head, like it's like sometimes you guys are such head people that there, there's, there's no heart and gut anywhere in the scene. And sometimes Joel will say, it's unreasonable. There's just no reason to be unhappy. There's just no reason to be unhappy. And I, it's like unhappiness in relationships is not always reasonable. But it seems to me that y'all's response to that is, well, it should be. <laughs> I, I definitely <laughs> have agree with that. I have agreed with that a lot in the past that... I mean, I never realized, it's so funny because I have been, I feel like I've been viewed by the majority of people in my life as someone who's very lighthearted, you know, like I bring a lot of levity, we, I laugh a lot, you know, and, and I hate to say that, I don't mean this in a self-deprecating way, but like a clown, you know, like, um, and I, we, I always have, you know, fun with everyone that I'm with. But I think that um, in regards to relationships, I don't. I forgot what we were talking about. 
Well, I'm just saying that I think complexity Gosh, in relationships, y'all don't. Yes. Uh, logic. Sorry. Yeah. I yeah. lost Lo- the yeah. train. Yeah. So, You're in a safe space of someone who gets to talking and gets a little. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, what, you know what we're is, talking about me. Oh, right? no, you no, know. No. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, see, I feel like. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Sometimes he says. Well, that's good. That makes sometimes me Sometimes he says to me, Mom, you're just talking. That's, you know, it happens. Yeah. I'm, you know, I've never, I've never been accused of that. Just kidding. Every day of my life. Right. You're um, just talking now. So logic is something I didn't realize. I don't think I've ever been viewed by people in my life as someone who really values logic, at least as like in a, when I was younger and growing up and things like that. Um, but I didn't realize how, log- how important logic was until I realized that I'm navigating life trying to use equations you know, again, like, why are you unhappy? There's no reason. Why are you bored? That used to be, so I've worked in day camps and, you know, summer programs and after school things. And, and, you know, the kid, that was the thing that got me all the time with kids would say, you know, I'm bored. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I was like, don't use the B word. Um, I literally have said that. Um, you know, and again, that idea of like, if you're, you know, boring boring people are bored you know like Mm -hmm. kind of type thing or look at the world around us why would you ever be bored you know like it wasn't logical to me um but try try having kids in that conversation with that of we have nothing to do and it's like what are you kidding me we have a yard we have Mm -hmm. animals you have books legos arts crafts you have a little brother you have a big sister you and it's gone to the point now we haven't done it yet, but I've been begging to do it, and I should. I'm going to do it today, in fact. Writing a list. The kids have a bulletin board in the hallway, mm-hmm. and having a laminated list of go look at the list, pick anything, throw a dart at it. I don't care, but you have stuff to do. You have bikes. I mean, so I, I agree with you, and it's not logical, and it's the same with mm-hmm. with everything else that, you know, there's a problem. Well, why is there a problem? Just Work it I, out. I Work like it how you out. Said you look. You it's all an equation. I didn't think about that. I, I, but I realized at one point that the equation wasn't working for me. Before I ever heard the word enneagram, mm-hmm. I was aware that feelings were illogical, and that I did not understand them. And that was so such a confusing time. I think that you know people expressing feelings to me that I had literally no control over, you know, like I wanted to fix it. I wanted to, you know, say, this is, you know, why are you like this? You know, why are you struggling with this? Or why are you mad at me? You know, like I've, what have I done? This isn't logical. And I think that with the, with Enneagram work, that's been huge is realizing that feelings aren't logical and that's okay. I think it's just innate in you guys because, when, you know, there were times when I felt very strongly as Joel's mom about things he was doing. And I reacted very strongly in terms of feelings. And he would just laugh at me, either outwardly or I knew he was <laughs> laughing inside. And it was like, I, I, I remember being aware of being so mad at him and so whipped up, and him looking at me like, what's wrong with you? Like it was all about me. It's a fascinating thing you guys (laughs) have, and it's what secures your place in the head triad. 
So I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that you have no, there are only two numbers on the Enneagram that have zero access to one of the three triads that's, you know, organic movement. Mm -hmm. And it's your number and mine. And you guys have zero organic access to the feeling triad. What do you think that's cost you? Mm. How do you see it as gain? And how are you trying to overcome it? What does it cost us? I think is, it's a hard question. And let's be honest, any question in regards to feelings is a hard question for me. And I would think for sevens in general. But, you know, I see that. So in one in stress, you know, in five insecurity, you know, those um, in, in my wing, which again can play a part or not, but the reality of it is I'm an aggressive number that goes, that has an aggressive wing that is going to one in stress, which is, you know, considered the fourth most aggressive number. And, you know, and then occasionally in five, I get to hide from feelings. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not always. And well, and I, so actually, but in regards to what it's cost me is intimacy. That's important. It's like, um, and is that because I don't know how to manage what's happening or is that because I don't want to be vulnerable to what's happening? You know, back to uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of I used to share the story that after Joel's first breakup with his first real love, he, I remember it like it was yesterday. We sat at the table and we both had a cup of coffee and he said, I'm never doing this again. If, if this ends in this, and if I'm risking this horrible feeling, then I'm just not going to do it again. And I probably with a lack of some sensitivity said, yes, you will. You, you will risk all this again. And I looked at her like she was crazy. I was like, you don't know me. <laughs> I, I think that um, as a seven, you know, we talk about seven skating on the surface. Uh-huh. And I feel like I'm skating on the surface, but not of an ice, but like quicksand. Oh, that's so good. And so... If I am in constant motion and if I'm always jumping from one thing to the next or one person, if I'm in this, you know, have this flurry of activity all the time, then I don't have time to sink. And the problem with intimacy is that in order to have intimate relationships, you have to be still. And... I went so long in my life without having any sort of intimate relationship with anyone in my life Mm -hmm. because I was skating, you know, on that quicksand all the Mm -hmm. time, moving, moving, moving. Um, So afraid to sink, so afraid to be still. 
Um, because with intimacy, you know, with being still, that's when you start to make connections. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I typically have dealt in groups most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times I've been in leadership opportunities in those groups. And so there wasn't, there was a different connection, you know, to the people around me that wasn't very, it was more like sparks, not actual, like, I wasn't gaining any energy from those relationships. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of draining me all the time. And so that's what, I think that's what have I've missed out in regards to not being able to connect with feelings mm-hmm. anywhere on the Enneagram. And I think that also, I think I've accessed, and I've said this for it, and this is my hypothesis or just my life, but I feel like I've accessed feelings more through five, my, you know, my, comfort five mm-hmm. you know be because mainly because it's made me be, be still mm-hmm. and in and I'm in an observer role and I'm quiet and I'm able to feel feelings in those times more so than anything else quick plug for the uh, path between us study guide so our group met two nights ago and it was the session two on what we want and so this is from page 17 for our number sevens in healthy range. Each number wants to experience life and relationships to the fullest. And then in average or unhealthy range, each number might want to avoid slowing down in order to be faithful to their responsibilities or present to others. And I think that's everything that you just said. I think part of it's because y'all didn't get to practice with feelings as children because they didn't ever come your way. You just kept moving and Everything requires practice. And I think, you know, you talked about the seven and one. It seems like the seven can kind of be manic doing, and then the one is intentional doing. I will say this, the word manic, I have to look that up in the dictionary on a regular basis. I mean, clearly I don't have like an actual dictionary, y'all. I'll look it up on my phone. Sure. But I have to reconnect with that word on a regular basis because and I'm good with words y'all but that one I hate it so much is it because you think it misrepresents you or because it does represent you I feel like it's because it represents me Mm -hmm. and I think it has a lot of connotations to it that like that's why I read the definition of it because you know I have to is this me is this what I'm doing right now Mm -hmm. am I just trying to dismiss this word because you know it sounds negative you know, I try to, I have to say, no, this is exactly what I'm doing. And, uh, and that's, those are the scariest times in my life is when I, that flurry of activity, that jumping from one thing to the next, when it's just, I'm spinning mm-hmm. and, uh, just spinning out of control. And those are really scary times for me. The definition that we got here is showing wild, apparently deranged excitement and energy. <laughs> And the other one is frenetically busy or frantic. And uh, just for anyone who's curious, Scrabble, that's worth nine points. The word man. (laughs) Good to know. There you go. Good to know. So um, I kind of want to talk to you guys about what you're afraid of. And and I I would love like a list of several things to work with, but just give me what you've got. And the the thing I'm going to follow that up with, just so you you know where I'm headed, which seems more fair, is I want to talk about whether or not you feel like you are utilitarian in other people's lives. Mm. If you kind of feel... So Joe tells a story about when he was a young priest and 
you know, he was kind of father groovy and good looking and played the guitar and sang and um, charming and all that. And he tells stories about feeling like people in parishes would kind of take him off the shelf and take him to social events where they were going as their, like, here's our groovy parish priest, but then put him back and go back to their lives. And I, from way out here, and I'm, I'm not you guys, it sometimes seems to me like people have an agenda for you. So I want to talk about what you're afraid of, and then I want to talk about whether or not you feel that stuff. Well, in regard to fears, you know, I think that is so hard to admit that I'm afraid of anything. You know, if whenever I was young, I felt like I could conquer anything. And that um, I never admitted those fears to myself. Um, but again, I was usually just trying to distract myself from what I was really afraid of. And even though, again, I, I, I crave intimacy, but I, I fear it because, you know, the possibility for pain is so deep again. Um, so I, I'm, I'm afraid of slowing down. I'm afraid of being bored. I'm afraid of being alone sometimes because, because especially whenever I'm, you know, very manic and, you know, I'm spinning out of control, you know, being alone is, is so scary and it feels like it could last forever. Like there, it feels like there could be no end. I'm all, yeah, go ahead. Well, that just makes perfect sense. That and I had never made that connection either. That if it feels like there's no end to how much fun we can have, then it would also feel like necessarily that there's no end to how much pain we could experience. You could experience, right? It's it's hard to see your, your way out of situations mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that that fear is just deep. But also, I think the fear that I will only be seen as I'm only appreciative for how much fun I am or I'm having the fear of being so authenticity and being genuine is something that is scary for me. I I want to do those things, but I also realize that that's a risk because if I show people something that they're not expecting, you know, if I give them something that, um, is out of the norm, you know, that I just don't think people are taking me, I, I fear of like people having the wrong idea of me, you know, or like feeling like they really know me when they have no, idea. you know, mm-hmm. have no idea. I make connections with people really quickly. And so a lot of times people are like, man, I feel like I've known you forever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that really scares me mm-hmm. because you've only been around me for you know, and two hours. You actually don't know me at all. You don't know anything. You know, I'm glad you feel comfortable, but also mm-hmm. I can, but it allows me to fake it too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, sure. Okay. We know. Yeah. We're besties. You know, I'll let you believe that, but it does scare me when I don't, you know, I let people walk away with that, con- you know, whatever they think about me and don't correct them. So you're one of my apprentices, and we're finishing three years together. And that group of people just doesn't allow for that. And by its nature, not because the people don't allow it. It's just like the reality is that by its nature, we're going to get together four times a year for three years and spend three days 
talking about the big stuff. How has that helped in terms of your ability to embrace risking authenticity? Mm. Or has it? I mean, I'm not. (laughs) Oh, it has. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's been, it's been life changing. I just was, I just spoke about this with one of my good friends earlier this week. And to be in a place, to be in a safe space, and that didn't come naturally. You know, that didn't come immediately, I should say. But, you know, being in a place where you will be known, and the only thing that stands in the way of you being known is yourself. That that is an opportunity that I had never experienced in before in my entire life. So one of the things I think we all need to work toward is uh, something that Joel's doing here at the Micah Center and that you can certainly do at Baylor. And, and that is starting groups that are for a meaningful purpose of authentic exchange on a regular basis for a finite period of time so that um, skating on the surface and manic activity and not risking being known doesn't get lost in a culture that moves as fast as ours does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not, yours is the last three-year apprentice program. I'm doing cohorts now that last one year. In part because so many people wanted to do it that I I couldn't continue to do three-year programs. But I, I don't think that's the only setup for how that can happen. And I, my hope is that when we have experiences of being in a safe place with other people for a time with some guidance, like a study guide or a group leader or the Enneagram curriculum, whatever it is, so that there's some structure around people not running amok, telling things they shouldn't tell, and getting away with just being a voyeur into other people's lives. I, I'm, I'm just going to challenge everybody to that because... I think it's necessary for every number for different reasons. And for you guys, I think it's necessary for you to find out that people are actually captivated by you sharing your deeper thoughts. Captivated. When you talk in this room with your 40 co-apprentice people, whatever that word is, um, you can hear a pin drop because... They want to know what's beneath the easygoing, carefree Leanne and Joel. And I want them to. Uh, earlier when you asked what you lose by, you know, in our sevenness, what have we lost? And you said intimacy. And my answer is and was going to be, and now I'll share it. Uh, respect and you kind of touched on that a second ago I think also mm-hmm. but just the respect of you know I do other stuff it's not just this and is it a male female thing that your answer was intimacy like that's not something that I that's not something that I long for if you will I don't know do you, is it a male female thing do are male sevens out there saying oh my gosh I'm missing out on so much intimacy 
And I guess that's not a, you know, we'll go to the phone lines for that. But uh. <laughs> Well, I'll give you an honest answer. I think that I wish that male sevens were saying, admitting that they need intimacy. You think I, that they do? I think I think that I think they're not need, but want. Are, I'm sorry, or want. You know, or that are that. I think that the male sevens that I know, I feel like have missed out on intimacy, and in that. But I think they're slower to admit to it. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But I, I just feel like that. And and respect is definitely something that I would agree with as well. For the record, I mean, I feel like the female sevens miss out on respect as well. Again, and I I would say the word is novelty for sevens that we are viewed as novelty over and over and over again. Um, but That's yeah. a good word. I think uh, we ought to talk a little bit about what we're talking about in terms of intimacy. And obviously, we're not just talking about sexual intimacy. We're talking about intimate exchange about feelings and. All that, and I think, Joel, in part, you grew up in a family where intimacy is exchanged on a regular basis. Like we, we are intimately connected to one another in our family. And my understanding from you is that is not how you grew up, Leanne. So that you didn't have those exchanges, and you know, people are equipped to offer that, and and some people aren't. It's not sure. a judgment; it just is. Of course. And I think um, sometimes a family that exchanges real feelings a lot of the time is too much for sevens. So it's almost like you to mm. potentially arrived at adulthood with different understandings of what that kind of exchange mm. costs. Because I, I can remember times when Joel would say, to us as a little boy and then growing up. I know that we have to have a talk. Could could it only be five minutes? <laughs> yeah, that still happens. <laughs> I remember in the whole family setting that we had going, the the intimacy that you're talking about yeah. and me checking out. Just mm. because when, you know, like doing check-ins, I'm like, I'm fine, life is good, yes. Sorry that I screwed up about that the other day. Like full-on check-in that we're doing here as a family. Yeah. And so, yes, I... Again, let's let's do the equation. The other mm -hmm. day, yes, I messed up, broke some rule, didn't do some chore, whatever it may be, and we're over. That's in the past, and oh my gosh, sometime soon we've got to talk about Jolie talking about the past. She is like she uses the terms now. Uh, I'll say, hey, I heard this happen between you and so and so. She's like, that's in the past. Don't talk about it. I'm like, awesome. Okay, you got it. But uh, thank God, her mama's orientation to time <laughs> is the present moment. Um, but yeah, and then everyone else going around, and you know, think between the rest of the people in our family. Dad was quiet; he was there, but quiet. But the rest of you weren't quiet. Well, and Dad and was only listening to two thirds of so, what was being said. He was with you more than he was with oh, me. Oh man! So yeah, but that checkout yeah. of. So I can deal, I can take in a lot, I, I have to deal, I guess you're maybe right, what you're saying. I have to deal with a lot less intimacy now as an adult than the forced intimacy that I was in growing up. But do you hear your friend here saying that that was a lack in her childhood? That's fascinating. And it does make a lot of sense. And I go back to respect, you know, being respect and intimacy. I was much more likely to gain respect in my family than intimacy and respect was gained without feelings involved at all. 
that was, you know, um, my father, who I believe is eight, you know, um, I wasn't getting any respect from him by throwing feelings around. Mm -hmm. I was going to get respect from him by having a logical argument and being passionate about what I thought was right and going toe to toe with him on something. That was what was going to garner me respect. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, I didn't have anything. Feelings were frowned upon in our, uh, household. Yeah. We weren't having check-ins. I think we, we, uh, I heard some, the check-in. I'm just saying. We weren't having check-ins. It would have been, we could have used some check-ins. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Well, just for the record, Joe and I called it family time, not (laughs) check-ins. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm just saying. I'm with Joel. (laughs) Sounds like a check-in. Yeah. I've got to go report. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be done 20 minutes. I've got to report in. 20 minutes, please. Good. (laughs) Got to go deal with some feelings or something. I um, heard a long time ago somebody say that all of what we go through in adulthood is just trying to work out what happened in childhood mm-hmm. that it's it's all about that and it i'm mindful right now and i have been before but not in a long time that the numbers the enneagram numbers of the people in your family system growing up have a lot to do with how you grow up in your own number and the opportunities you have to bring up your repressed center and all of that has to do with kind of the luck of the draw or the hand that you're dealt in terms of the Enneagram numbers of other family members. Can you, and we talked about it a little bit early on, Mm -hmm. but can you talk about what being oriented to the future means to you? Um, in regards to being future oriented, I feel like that it frames so much of my life. And I assume that I assume every single day that we're all looking towards the future. So I think that's the most difficult thing for me is it's kind of jarring when I realize that people aren't, we're not all on the same page, um, that we're not all moving forward. And I feel like one of the ways it's affected me the most in my life is that, you know, I have people that I love and care for that are focused so much on the past. The present, I don't have so many issues with, I feel like, but the the past is what really gets me in trouble. And I feel terrible on a regular basis because someone has remembered a party or a moment, a memory that I cannot connect with because I just don't remember it. And so, and I can see the look on people's faces. And again, people, my friends, my family, the people that I love and care for, when they realize that I forgot they were there. And that's what I can see. That's their, that's their thought process, you know? And the reality is I forgot I was there, you know, like I don't, I have a really hard memories and I think this goes, speaks to the denial that sevens deal with. And I don't know if this is ever all, not all sevens, but I have a very difficult time remembering things. It has been so easy to be in denial over so much over the years that there's things I feel like I like intentionally stick in the denial box. That's what I call it. Okay. 
but there's a lot that just slips in there and that in my mind is so crammed full and looking at future possibilities and all the routes we might want to take and which one's scenic and which one's the fastest and you know how I can get everybody on the same page to move in one direction and it's very difficult whenever people want to jump back in the past because I just don't recall a lot of it. Yeah, and what a what a wrench thrown into the gears to stop down to rewind and oh, look back. Yes. I think it was touching on what you started opening with, Tony Jones, who was talking about he was in somebody in somebody's wedding and they were talking about it, and they're like he was like, Oh, congratulations. And they're like, What do you mean congratulations? You were in the wedding. I, th- I think there's an awful lot to be said about orientation to time. And one of the things that I'm kind of aware of lately is that um, people whose orientation to time is the future have more energy. And I think that we have said in Enneagram community and teaching that they have more energy because they're aggressive. I think they have more energy because they're not burdened with carrying all the stuff from the past and I carry stuff in the present moment so I'm Mm. uh, Joe's kind of on a campaign to get me to quit apologizing you know I just apologize evidently all the time I say I'm sorry and he's decided that his thing is going to be to point it out every time I do that and say stop saying you're sorry stop it Mm. and I think that's um a part of, in the moment, trying to be present to everybody, feeling aware that I can't, and apologizing kind of for whatever I'm messing up. When, if I can retrain myself to incorporate a little better looking forward, I won't be stuck in that. It's like a stuck pattern for me that I didn't know I had. However, if that's true, then it's also true that you guys need to have a touchstone in the present moment and in the past. And I'm assuming that feels like the kind of drag that you're talking about. What I like is that you spoke about it from a perspective of what, what I do the least is look in the past. I'm convinced now, having done some other reading about time, that as with thinking, feeling, and doing, and as with subtypes, what we're really ultimately going to be looking for in in advanced Enneagram work is balance in past, present, and future, meaning that there's an appropriate time to look to the past, Mm. an appropriate time to be in the present moment, an appropriate time to look to the future. I went to a memorial service yesterday for uh, a mentor in my life who um, has been part of my life since I was 18 and I'm 68. It's a, it's a big loss for me to lose her. She's a one on the Enneagram and um, somebody who um, challenged me to do many things that turned out to be really good for me. And she was 80 and she had had a stroke and she'd lived a full life and, and her death was not something that she was sad about. And I didn't want her to be paralyzed on one side and all that, so I wasn't really sad. And I got to this event, which Joe was doing, and I 
you know, that means I'm alone when Joe's the person in charge. And I was fine until they started showing slides. Mm. And they showed a slide of me with her when I was 18, and I lost it. I just lost it because I think I don't tip my hat enough as a two either way, not to the future and not to the past. And so the past surprises me, Mm -hmm. and the future scares me a little bit, and so I just keep hanging out right here in whatever's right in front of me. All that to say, does a different orientation to time scare you? And do you feel supported by another orientation to time? I feel more supported by the past mm-hmm. than I do by the future. I'm, I, and I, I give myself a pass by just saying, I'm not very good at big picture thinking, or I can't see ahead that far, or, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I think to use the terms that you used earlier, what, what is the equation that you're going for? I'd be curious how many things when you were talking about your denial box were success stories, happy memories that are in the denial box. I bet we, we can go back and pull lots of times. If people want to look into the past, yeah, this worked that time that I did this, mm-hmm. or this worked that time for someone else, or success stories, because that plus this equals success in the future. So then if people want to look at the past at, let's, let's dig up this, uh, this bad memory, or the time that you failed, or this failed, or this was unhappy, then that plus what, so are we trying to get to unhappy? Like, is that the equation here? So, so one of my issues with talking about the past with people is that I remember things so differently than everyone else. So all of this, when this is, as both of y'all were speaking, the word that just kept coming up over and over again in my mind is reality. Because the reality lies in the past and in, in the present. The future is there's nothing solid in the future. It's all possibilities. And so reality is something that I have struggled with my entire life. Again, the past, that is painful to realize that you remember things completely different than other people. And not that I assume that they have the correct memory all the time, but along the way, I have realized time and time again that I had no idea what was actually happening when it was happening. Is that cause y'all go in your heads? You know, I teach about the fact that sevens have a happy place and if what if they can't handle what's going on, they just go in their heads to their happy place. I, Is that what's happening? I think it's different for every number. Like for sevens it could be could be that at times. But when you know, we talked about David Gaffney with David Gaffney and he talked about how he would change the reality of something that happened because of his foreignness to mm-hmm. make it that it was too mundane, the reality. Mm-hmm. And then in hindsight, going back and looking at it. And we've talked uh, at length with a lot of people about after you learn the Enneagram, going back and seeing things, maybe if you, especially if you know the other people, figures in the story, their Enneagram number now, you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't that's what happened. Maybe we we paint it with our brush, our seven brush. Oh, I think that's exactly it. I think it's the fact that it's an innately part of our personality to reframe in real time. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing when we're reframing it, as we're taking it in, we're reframing it. 
that creates a memory that create, we're creating the past as it's happening. And yeah, I, I have been, it has been very, really sobering to realize that, um, that I was very disconnected with what was happening around me, that I was only seeing the positive and that, you know, I, so I think that's my issue with the past. And again, I think my issue with the present is that it's so, it's elusive to me because I am reframing so often. So in order to actually be present in my body and in my mind and, you know, to fully be present means that I have to accept reality as it had, like what true reality is. And I don't know that, you know, we can't, whatever that is, whatever that is, you know, but, but, but the idea that I'm actually taking it in for the, as the most genuine real thing that I can in the moment. So do you think that means that you have to be present to what's happening in real time? using all three centers? Oh, yes. Um, Again, and I think that comes back to, you know, what we missed out, what we miss out by not being able to connect with feeling. You know, I think part of what we miss out is reality itself because that thinking, feeling, and doing, I need all of those things balanced in order to have an accurate, the most accurate view of reality possible. So Enneagram Wisdom says that your repressed center is the purest part of you. Do you think your feelings... <laughs> I should not have said that sentence that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> are your feelings the purest part of you? And are you aware of that? I think they are the purest part of me. I have been gaining awareness in that specifically over the last three years as I've been in the apprentice program and have been working on practicing silence and being still and practicing the spiritual discipline of boredom, you know, and just, again, not trying to sugarcoat, not trying to put a filter on everything and to let go of the logic I think has been very challenging for me because feelings, accepting them as they are and being okay that I don't understand them because it's unhelpful for me to just try to figure out my own feelings and break those down. And, and just, I've been just trying to accept them for what they are in that moment. So I just want to add to this um, whole conversation about, reality and repressed feelings and logic. You know, I'm thinking repressed and feeling dominant. And I have to have that logic. So one of the most significant exchanges that I've ever had with Joel as my oldest son occurred in the hospital the day that Joe had his heart attack. And Joel's feelings were pure as gold, because he loves Joe so much. And I was as illogical as I have ever been, because I love Joe so much. And I, I think we always think the movement is both ways, and that's not always true, because in that moment he was where he needed to be feeling-wise, and all the movement was on my part mm. to find a place of logic to stand so that I could hear and think through what the docs were saying and that 
all of that. And so I don't, I don't want it to look too simple mm-hmm. to people who are listening. How it is not simple how we balance the three centers of intelligence. It's not simple for us to learn to listen to other people who have a stronger center than we do. And when the table is set like it was that day when Joel's feelings were so pure and my thinking was so messed up, that that's a learning time that lasts a lifetime. Mm. And I don't know exactly how to teach people about that. I don't know how to teach people to watch for it yet. I'm going to figure it out. But I'm just aware that there are these snapshots that defy reframing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any? Mm. This lady knows how to ask some questions. I'll tell you that much. The answer can be no. Or it could be, yeah, I got several and I don't want to tell you what they are. You know, that is so funny. I never realized until this moment that you can actually say yes to a question and then not tell a story. So, yes, I do have some of those stories. Good. And I cherish them. Yeah. And it's my birthday and I'm not going to share them with you right now. Oh, yeah. And it's my birthday, so I'll do what I want. You haven't used that card yet today. I haven't. (laughs) A lot of the questions that come in from people about sevens are not from sevens. And a lot of people come to workshops wanting answers about the seven in their life. Could you talk a little bit about insight, advice, whatever it may be, to people in relationships with a seven? I think the most important thing that I ever heard about taking care of seven was at a workshop and, you know, Suzanne, you addressed the entire room and uh and I knew all the sevens in the room too I knew where they were at and um you said that it the sevens need us to check on them and of course there was a more to it than that but that was the the takeaway for me and whenever you said that I looked around the room at my sevens who were scattered all over the place and I remember that I had tears in my eyes. It just hit me immediately. And as I glanced around the room, every single seven that I saw was tearing up. And it was just such a surprising, this little tiny piece of this nugget of truth that hit home with every single one of us in that moment. And I think the issue is with sevens because we're, looking forward all the time and we're optimistic and we're not dealing with our feelings and, and we are terrible at asking for help, especially in regards to things of the heart. And we desperately, we don't think we're going to be taken care of and we don't know how to ask people to help take care of us. And in that moment, I just remember, I just realized all the relationships in my life that have been so hurtful that they really, if they would have just checked on me, the times in my life when I've been hurt the most, that's a better way to say it, were when I felt like it was clear that I needed to be checked on and someone and no one checked on me. And I think that's tricky because I think that whenever we check on people, sometimes we have expectations 
And I think checking on a seven with expectations that they're going to respond, uh, that might be a little much. I think that, you know, having expectations that they're going to shower you with love and, you know, thank you so much for checking on me. You know, like, I think that takes a while to get up to that point. There are definitely people that check on me sometimes and I desperately need it and I don't respond to them until a week later, two weeks later, two months later. And I tell them that meant so much in that moment. Um, but I couldn't, art, you know, I didn't know how to articulate that. So I think that, I mean, I'm literally just saying one thing, but I think it's the most important thing in regards to sevens is that check on the sevens in your life and, you know, make, let them know, let them know that you are there and then they'll reach out if they want to. You both know that I teach that I think eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram. I... In the last month or so, I've been doing some writing, and I think that there are more assumptions made about sevens than any number on the Enneagram. And one of the assumptions that I think is made, because you all uh, are, are magnets. People want to know you. They kind of want to be in your circle, and they want to see life the way you do, and they, they really want to be um, in relationship with you. But you don't know it. They don't tell you. You're usually moving pretty fast. And I think the false assumption that you all are sharing intimately with other people is uh, a real misunderstanding in how sevens are really operating in the world. And I, uh, a lot of people, you know, want to talk about introverted and extroverted and whether or not it makes a difference and all that. And one of the things I'm aware of, too, about sevens is I think your number is the hardest number to tell whether or not someone's an introvert or an extrovert. Because those of you who are introverts look like extroverts because you're sevens. Mm. So I just think there's a ton of assumption about you that's just the wrong assumption, quite simply. Gosh, I'm glad you spent your birthday with us. It was an honor. I couldn't imagine wanting to be anywhere else right now. Oh, well, thanks so much. And thanks for coming. And um, publicly, thanks for all the things you do for me when I'm at Baylor that make my world better. Sevens are very aware of comfort. And y'all kind of walk around making sure that people are comfortable. And I feel pretty sure we don't thank the sevens in our lives enough for that. So thanks for that and for so much more. Thank you. I appreciate it.